Yeah, there were a ton of there were a ton of good fights, um, and then there are like just smart matchups that can be built off of those fights. It's just like a, a fight nerd's dream, right? This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Wait. Study. We brought back Coach Jason. Uh, at this point, we shouldn't even consider him a guest because he's been on so often. So I think most listeners know who he is. We also have a lot of great fights to cover because we just had a bunch of MMA and boxing this past weekend. First off, let's talk about Devin Haney retaining his WBC lightweight title over Joseph Jojo Diaz. For Diaz, this was not only his toughest opponent to date, but also his biggest. Diaz was the visibly smaller fighter in this fight. Jason, tell me your thoughts about this fight. Oh, I've got to see Haney uh, live in Madison Square Garden, and uh, this was about uh, three or three years ago. And and watching uh, the young man compete, you could tell that he was going to be next level. Um, it was pretty obvious. So when when you see matchups, especially when he's the the bigger fighter, and he's got the established skill set and, and just a hell of a toolkit, um, you always wonder if um, if Haney's going to run away with it. So like, I didn't have a ton of interest until I started until the fight started to unfold. You know, in the first round, Haney looked sharp as usual. You know, long jab, long straight right hands, um, and working upstairs and downstairs to the body and to the head. Oh, and then round two becomes much of the same. You know, a, a very disciplined Haney with very strong fundamentals, starting to pile out and measure Diaz a little bit, and landing incredibly well placed shots. You know, the body into the head, and it looked like Diaz was hoping to split some of those punches to make up that distance. Uh, but Haney's jab was too accurate, and it was usually like too well placed for him to to do anything but sort of get stuffed in that split punch simultaneous counter kind of effort. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how the fight started. But what, what can you say Diaz is tough? And I think the mix of, of Diaz grit, uh, some skill and some toughness really allowed a fight that could showcase Haney's overall talent. And like, eventually uh, a hell of a fight was able to unfold, and it was pretty fun to watch. Diaz, despite being the smaller fighter, actually was still the slower fighter. So he was smaller and slower. And also standing southpaw with that reach disadvantage, you end up even further away, right? In that southpaw orthodox matchup. So he had to basically walk through hell to try to get on the inside. Um, And that's basically how Haney capitalized. And I think Haney even said before the fight, that he's going to try to come in and I'm going to make him walk through hell to do it. And he did. And basically for it to become a close fight, Jojo started having to accept that he was going to have to eat a lot of punches to get in there and do his own work. So he relied on his chin and his toughness to get in. It seemed like Jojo Diaz did the best he could, but this was always just a bad style matchup for him. Oh, absolutely. But I think he made an astute observation in that he sort of threw or Diaz had to throw a caution to the wind. I think it was in the, in the fourth round, 
Um, you know, Diaz usually try a southpaw versus an orthodox. You're going to try to maintain that outside foot position. But I think it was midway through the fourth, Diaz throws away that outside foot position and he nails Haney with like a little shovel body shot, right? Straight left, but with the hand turned out, like pronated up towards the sky um, and hits a nice left hand to the body. And you realize that he's having some, at least some effect in working inside, but giving up that outside position to a long, um, pretty powerful um, an incredibly accurate puncher like Haney. I mean, I think you can only go to that well so many times. So when I say that 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 kind of stylistic matchup where, where Diaz in like the fourth and fifth round was able to step up the pressure, make it ugly, um, it, it allowed for a fun fight to unfold because uh, Haney had to make some some adjustments. The, the, the pressure from Diaz um, – I mean, the fight, well, it went the distance and, you know, Diaz had, I think, a solid seventh round and was able to to keep the pressure up throughout. But it's the kind of fight where, like, how old is Haney? He's like 23 years old. He's a kid, really. And this kind of fight is going to make a great talent in Haney even better going forward, I think. You know, he had to, he had to work out some problems and do some problem solving in real time. Um, without taking a ton of damage or engaging in, in what I would consider an all-out war. It was a tough fight, and his conditioning and his toughness were tested by Diaz. But you know, uh, in the end, you see just what an elite talent that, uh, that Haney really is. We had another fun fight this weekend in boxing, another 135-pound title defense, this time for the WBA regular lightweight title. It was... Gervonta Tank Davis retaining his belt against Isak Cruz. Now, Tank Davis is small for the lightweight division, but in Cruz, he found an opponent who was smaller than him. It was similar to the Haney versus Diaz fight in that it was Southpaw versus Orthodox, except in this fight, the Southpaw had the speed and size advantage. Jason, tell me about this fight. I mean, it starts with uh, with Cruz applying pressure, similar to uh, to what Jojo Diaz was able to do. Um, that kind of pressure made it a, a fight that was closer than I anticipated that it would be. Um, uh, some of the, I think, some of the commentary with Pitbull Cruz sort of exceeding expectations made maybe one or two of the rounds appear a little bit closer than they were. But for the most part, it was a very very competitive fight where if um, if Davis doesn't step on the gas in that 12th round, we might have seen a, a majority draw. But it is what it is whenever you take a look at someone like uh, someone like Davis, who has the ability to shut your lights out at any point. Uh, but we saw a little bit of a different wrinkle with him fighting off the back foot and, uh, and Cruz coming with that pressure. And he's a little stump of a man, but he kept that pressure up. He, kept, he stayed in uh, Javante's face. And I've seen some people say, oh, well, it, it, he wasn't hurting him. You touch someone to the body enough times, um, and you they decide rather than be a pressure fighter themselves to give up ground. Then, I mean, whether you feel them or not, it's like the same same guys that are saying, "Oh, why don't we just get up and watch an MMA fight?" It's like, "Oh, he's not hurting them." Well, those shots hurt, and they take a toll, and they start to build and start to accumulate. Um, and I think uh, you got to give you got to give Cruz credit for really pushing a guy that's only been the, to the scorecards, I think, once in his career. 
it was a pretty fun fight too. Very similar to, uh, very similar to the Haney Jojo Diaz fight in that, like the shorter, stockier guy came with some pressure and brought out, um, you know, brought out some some problem solving necessity on the on the side of the favorite. And you saw what you saw. You know, you saw a pretty fun fight unfold. And I don't think anyone thought it was going to be as competitive as it was. Isak not only going into the fight wasn't intimidated by Tank Davis's power, but even after eating a bunch of hard shots, he still wasn't intimidated and he still kept coming forward. So that speaks a lot to him. But Cruz tends to charge forward with his head down, often causing headbutts. Especially since this was a Southpaw versus Orthodox fight, I thought I'd see a lot of headbutts anyway. But the head down approach, going back to the styles, worked against Cruz because Davis loves to throw uppercuts. So every time he came in with his head down, charging in, instead of a collision of heads, Davis just moved back or moved to the side and hit him with an uppercut. But eventually, hitting the top of his head hurt Davis's hand, right? He was hitting him to the top. That head down approach actually did pay off because eventually um, Davis hurt his hand on his head. And then from then on, it really started getting competitive, which is why making predictions for combat sports is so difficult because all sorts of things can happen besides one fighter just being better than the other fighter. So with that said, tell me what you thought about that last round where Davis fought the whole thing with one hand. Yeah, well, that left hand of Davis is, is such a such a bomb that, I mean, I'm surprised he doesn't hurt it on the regular. He just launches that thing, whether it's an uppercut or whether it's a, a straight left or an overhand or whenever he's ripping to the body on both sides. I mean, he he throws everything with bad intentions, especially that left hand. And sometimes that from throwing from that uppercut position or that uppercut from from the, the in tight position, it can get jammed or stuffed. And I'm really surprised he doesn't injure it more often just the way he throws it because he can hit hard for a 135-pound man. He really can. Well, you look at the little monster uh, Inoue, and I think he hits so hard and so often with his power hand, he does break his own hands. So that isn't uh, unheard of. Yeah, for sure. And the, the he throws he also throws a nice right hook, but he tends to throw that with like the at least showing that uppercut. Uh, but it, we were able to see that Davis could give ground and still continue to score, um, which the way that uh, that Cruz was able to fight with his forward pressure like forced that to happen. Another stylistic situation where like the the pressure fighter was able to muddy the waters enough to to keep it competitive and take away some of the tools, you know. But the the uppercut being what it is, being an inside shot, a shorter shot. Um, I don't know if it's always in the best interest to keep sort of like headbutting forward like Cruz is able to do, but he can take a shot and his defense is, is pretty good. He keeps his hands up um, and he's in position and he's one of those guys who whose chin coupled with his pocket presence allow him to take a shot, even from a heavy puncher like Davis. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod.
Now let's go to our third 135 title fight. This was in Bellator with Sergio Pettis knocking out Kyoji Horiguchi with a spinning back fist to retain the Bellator bantamweight title. Jason, what the hell happened here? Wow. I mean, uh, Horiguchi looked to be the best fighter in the world, pound for pound. Yeah. What he was, right? Amazing. Everything he was doing was outstanding. It was it was perfect. Um, from his wrestling to to his his punching to his wrestling setups, his spinning techniques. He looked like a guy who had legitimate wrestling skills coupled with a guy who had a nice boxing hybrid, uh, boxing karate hybrid style that um, that you weren't going to be able to figure out, at least not Sergio Pettis, at least not on that night until Pettis did. And this goes to, to some of the fights we'll talk about uh, going forward like Fiziev and Riddell, the ability to continue striking off of missed shots or to correct footwork and positioning or to use missed shots or even throwaway shots to set up secondary and tertiary techniques um, is sort of the evolution of MMA now. And you're seeing, you're seeing more and more of that. And, you know, Pettis hit that shot, and I've seen some people call it a fluke. If you want to call it a fluke based on the dominance that was occurring, sure. Uh, but if you want to call it a fluke, and not, you'd be remiss not to address the fact that it's been part of uh, Sergio Pettis's uh, repertoire for a while, and you can see a bunch of training videos where he hits that that, that similar technique over and over. So even in the same fight, he threw it several times and was barely missing. Absolutely, and Horiguchi doing everything right. Um, Sometimes he does drop his hands on the exit ever so slightly. And we'll do that as a corrective mechanism for our feet. I mean, we don't always have our hands up every time. So sometimes you just make a corrective balance adjustment and shift in using those hands as like a counterbalance. And someone like Pettis decides to whip around on a, on a spinning back fist and it, it touches your chin in that perfect spot and, and you're snoring. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes you're the hammer and sometimes you're the fucking nail, right? And in that situation, Horikuchi spent much of the fight being the hammer and he looked, he looked absolutely perfect in doing it until Sergio found that shot when he found that shot. I think it ended up happening this way because all the other times he threw it was in open space, whereas this time they were coming off of a clinch. So in fact, his high kick, he was actually too close to actually land it, right? because they were just coming off of a clinch. So then when he threw the back fist, all the previous times, Horiguchi was like five inches further away. Whereas this time, because they started out in a clinch position as he was backing up, Horiguchi didn't realize he's actually still five inches closer than all the other times. And he got hit with that shot because he didn't factor in that he was starting off closer this time when he was escaping. All right. And Sergio must have sensed something also because that, that, the kick that he throws where he turns into it after he throws it, he's giving up his hips. And Horiguchi, I think, was what? Something like four of six or four of seven on the takedowns up to that point. So if Horiguchi doesn't exit, that punch isn't there. And the wrestling domination, at least in terms of takedowns, would continue. But I guess he sensed that he was going to exit against the cage, and he found that shot. I mean... I wouldn't have been surprised if Horiguchi just sort of ran through his hips off that missed kick and put him on the mat again, but that didn't happen. So, you know, so, uh, 
seeing Pettis be able to find that shot and put himself in a continuation of technique, I like to call it. Like if you miss something, um, it still leads into something else. Uh, it's an important aspect of MMA. I don't see everyone um, continuing to train and develop. Then you watch two guys, you know, we can talk on this in a minute, but Fiziev and Riddell are guys that like put a thousand percent into every, every shot, but yet there is a tendency for those shots, even if they're missed, to lead into secondary and tertiary technique. And I think that's incredibly important. Now let's zoom out a little bit with this fight and just forget about the ending for a second, because, you know, this isn't a fight where you walk away thinking better about Sergio Pettis. It's almost a fight where, despite Horiguchi losing, you think even more about his skills, because I picked Pettis to win in my write-up, and I, I did think he would be losing until he wasn't. So I, of all people, should not be surprised by this ending. And the reason why I thought this was because of how Anthony Pettis beat Wonderboy. But with all that said, why it still surprised me was I didn't expect for it to be so lopsided when he was losing. I thought he would just kind of be edged out every round by Horiguchi until he figured it out or found uh, you know, some openings. But instead, it was like a complete shutout to that point, right? So in a bigger sense, it makes me think about Rufus Sports in general and that team because they had this plan, right? It seemed like the plan was to corner Horiguchi and limit his movement, except they're smaller fighters. And this is in a circular cage, not an octagon, which makes it harder to corner people. And it seems like in general, Rufus fighters can't seem to make mid-fight adjustments when their A-game isn't working. And he kept chasing Horiguchi and getting beat up by the faster counter-striker. What I did wonder is, what would have happened if Pettis, instead of chasing him, just turned with him? Because Horiguchi kept circling. So if he kept his ground and just turned with him, kind of like how Teofimo Lopez did against Vasily Lomachenko and let the counter-striker come to him, I wondered how that would have been for Sergio Pettis. But despite that, it seemed like Pettis in round four, maybe out of desperation, was finding success prior to that ending sequence anyway, just by walking himself into the clinch and just accepting that he was going to get hit. You know what I mean? Like Pettis is a fighter who doesn't like to get hit. And in that round, it seemed like, well, I'm getting hit anyway. So let me just walk through some punches and just grab him and see what happens. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I'm going to cut you off there, but that, that's an excellent point. Where Sergio is normally the better athlete. Um, and and say, like, the, both Pettis brothers have like next level athleticism. They're really, really, uh, really physically gifted. Um, it seemed like, Horiguchi's the better athlete, right? Yeah, like faster, right? It was, and you're not used to seeing that. So it seemed like Pettis just said, "Fuck it," threw his nuts over his shoulder and said, "I'm going to walk through hell and do do what I need to do to close some distance." And it still wasn't really working, but it was working a little bit better than him. Yeah, sort of, right? Trying to be the faster, something different, right? Yeah, so he just he just shifted gears and maybe put it into low drive and just said or low gear and just started walking forward. Um, and again, he wasn't having a ton of success until he was. I was really impressed with Horiguchi's wrestling. Like he just seemed physically stronger, physically faster. He just you don't see Sergio Pettis like manhandled or look seemingly mismatched like that. And if if this is a three round fight, we're having a totally different discussion, right? <laughs> like we're talking about um, 
fight stats of like 70% total strikes landed in favor of Horiguchi. Um, and I forget how many, what, four, four, at least four takedowns in the first three rounds. So we're talking about Horiguchi ragdolling him instead. Yeah. We're, we're talking about now Sergio Pettis finding that shot and potentially knockout of the year. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting how it unfolded. And uh, it goes to, to, to what I just said. Uh, Horiguchi is a very good athlete. And when you're used to, when Pettis is used to being the, the better athlete, you can win via athleticism, right? So when someone else takes away your strong suit, like, um, you know, we could talk about uh, Gustafson versus John Jones. Well, all of a sudden, Jones, who's always, always used to having the, the reach and the length advantage once that's taken away like things got a little bit awkward for him competition wise he had to make some adjustments and arguably he lost that fight uh, though on the scorecards he did not but um the only reason that fight was as competitive as, as it was was because the the strengths that he's used that that john jones is used to fighting to fighting to were taken away so pettis when faced with a similar situation his athletic ability used to be his strong suit is usually his strong suit no matter who he's in there with um isn't isn't the this the same bright shining star when he's in there with horiguchi he switches to some toughness and some grit and he walks forward in that fourth round and um you know (laughs) the stars align perfectly to put it on horiguchi's chin and i also wonder if the sequence happened because Horiguchi has had a long layoff and was coming off of a knee injury. So, you know, you're not in the cage for a long time. You might end up making small mistakes, getting a little sloppy because you haven't been in there for a while, you know, or maybe because he's such a movement-based fighter and he had less than a year after uh, knee surgery to train and prepare for this fight. You know, that had to have been a part of this as well, you know, he just hasn't been in there and he's coming off of an injury, even a couple of millimeters of distance issues or half a second of being too slow. And that's all it took for this fight to end. Well, absolutely. You want every possible advantage you can have and a year's layoff is not an advantage, right? Um, MMA is a violent, chaotic, uh, uh, dynamic endeavor. So you want to control as many variables and as many factors as possible that your layoff is one that you can't injury another one, um, not playing to your advantage. So if you were going to script how you want to go into a fight, those two considerations are, are something you wouldn't want to, to bring with you. Um, and if you're doing a fight breakdown, you'd be remiss not to address them both. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly not ideal, but here's the thing. Like in the first three rounds, it didn't look like any of those things mattered. No. Right. And that's the amazing part is he was that dialed in. Um, He looked like a guy that if you said, hey, do you want to be a professional boxer, uh, an Olympic wrestler, or do you want to fight MMA? Um, Take take your pick and you might be able to do each and every one at a gold medal level, right? (laughs) So, and then, by the way, beat up uh, Sergio Pettis in the meantime. It it, it looked like he was that good. That's why the the way it unfolded was, was, was shocking. Because you were, we were all sort of in awe of of the um, the technical prowess combined with, you know, he's 
he's beating the shit out of a really good opponent. And he's someone, someone we were familiar with, which I, that becomes the benefit of uh, Pettis' tenure in the UFC is we got to be familiar with him. We got to see Pettis fight. Right. Did he, he fought Rob Font, right? He fought, um, he fought the who's who of 25 and 35 pounders. So we got to see him really compete. Um, and then we get to see what happens when he goes in there against another guy. And if you try to do any, any MMA math or at least some sort of like uh, exercise in relativity, you, you, you see how good Horiguchi is and you start to get impressed with it and you're like, yeah, yeah. And you're feeling it. And then, Sergio spinning back fist takes away all your hopes and dreams. <laughs> he just crushes him in a second. <laughs> Next, we had another 135 match between Rob Font, this time someone you mentioned, and Jose Aldo. Tell me about this fight. Uh, it's a fight that made me want to jump through the, t- the television screen and give Jose Aldo a hug for everything he's <laughs> brought to, to the sport for just... You know, I don't speak a lake of Portuguese except maybe Benvindo and Sim and Muitabal. That's it. Uh, but I, I feel like when he's talking that he is um, doing MMA proud, right? Um, especially after his wins and everything that he's been through. Um, he's just had such a storied career that uh, it's impossible not to root for him. So when he goes in there and does what he does at an advanced age, and we, we're all going to talk about his gas tank, we'd be crazy not to. Um, and he makes it happen uh, against a Rob Font who had an, a, a very impressive showing against um, a somewhat weathered Cody Garbrandt. Uh, he's, still, he's still a top five talent. And um, Aldo, you know, mid-30s at a weight class that is not really his home, uh, was able to put it on him after getting overwhelmed with volume and uh, some some uh, some good punch sequences and or some some excellent striking sequences from Font. Um, he was able to put it on him. I think knock him down every round and control all the grappling after that. Seemed like Font did four things that Aldo eventually figured out. His stance switches, which Aldo eventually began to time. Timing Font's jabs for leg kicks. Font leans forward to draw out his opponent's attacks, which works for people who throw punches like MMA fighters, but not so good for Aldo, who comes in under his feet most of the time, other than that one fight with McGregor where he did throw it like a typical MMA punch face forward. The lunging face first shot, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. But in this fight, he came in under his feet every time, and you know, every time Font was leaning forward. He got hit. And then the last thing I think Aldo figured out was that he was the better wrestler. So all those ways eventually, like, you know, each round was kind of a reset. Font would do the thing again, and then Aldo would figure out a new thing, right? The thing with Aldo, it seems like he's losing some attributes, but he's getting better as a boxer. The main problem seems to be that regardless of all that, his gas tank keeps aging and his durability keeps aging. So. Like, even in this fight, it seemed we were all worried about Aldo's gas tank, you know, even though he was winning, right? Yes, yes, we were. So that was the weird thing about this fight is he won every round, except we were still nervous for him. Uh, absolutely. I started taking deep breaths for him in between <laughs> rounds. Like, I caught myself breathing for him. <sighs> breathe in, breathe out. Control your breathing. Stay focused when you're tired. All those things. I'm going through it in my head, hoping that he gets that kind of recovery. Um, I think you make a, a great point that he 
like when he started to land that right hand, it was because he kept his feet under him and he was able to to step through and connect. And he almost punched through Font's entire skull on one of them, even though Font had his hands up and was in a relatively good position. But he wasn't on like even on the end of that shot, Font got punched through. And then um, it seems like the rods and cones and synaptic responses in the brain just all started to go haywire for Font a few of the times he got touched. Um, and that was from exceptional punch placement and some pretty decent power considering um, Aldo brought his feet with him. And I want I wanted to see more of that, um, but without uh, taking any unnecessary risks and mixing in some kicks. Now, this is the peculiar thing with Jose Aldo is Jose Aldo has abandoned kicks, even though they work so incredibly well for him. And when he threw them against Font, they were game changers in taking away Font's jab um, and his like his lean in stance where he tries to get you to commit. They were it was it was an exceptional technique thrown at the right time. But I, I, I'm sure I'm not alone that I get frustrated that he doesn't go to that well a little bit more. And I understand that his boxing has improved a bit, um, but his his kicks are excellent. And you're right, Jose Auto can fucking wrestle. He can. And in his losses to Max Holloway, you watch him beat Holloway to the inside a couple different times and then just sort of shove Max away. I mean, he's got like a balls deep underhook and his hips are against Max's hips and he just shoves him away. Where if he wanted to wrestle, all he would have to do is lower his hips maybe two or three inches and run through him. But he just shoved away the longer fighter the second he beat him to his hips. Um and there are some there are some highlights of Jose Aldo's wrestling that I saw someone post on Twitter that said, like, wouldn't it be great if Jose Aldo went back to this? And he was just th- throwing around somebody, and it was a ho- Jose with hair, so you know, younger in his career. Uh, I think the the more he can become, and no, no one wants to wrestle in their late thirties, and it's just too tiring. But the more you can string together uh, different techniques, like if the the striking is set up by the occasional wrestling and the kicks set up the punches and the punches set up the kicks and he mixes it all in as well as anybody when he does um, or as effectively as anybody when he does, then I'd like to see a little more of that. Um, and when he did it against Font, I think that's what sort of changed the tide for him. I think the reason why he doesn't kick as much as we'd like him to is because his legs are just banged up. Even in this fight, if you notice, in between every round after he kicked, he was on one foot. He was on the foot that wasn't kicking. So that means the foot that he was kicking with. Just rewind and go back to uh, the fight with Max Holloway versus Yair Rodriguez, where Yair was the one kicking. And so you thought after the fight, Max Holloway would be the one limping. But it was not that way. It was actually Yair was the one limping and had to be helped out. And then they zoomed in on his foot and his foot was just swollen especially the instep and the ankle. And I think for Jose Aldo, it's the same deal because first of all, in Muay Thai, you don't spam leg kicks like that. It's just not something that they do over there, even though they basically invented the low kick, right? And secondly, in Muay Thai, you fight a lot closer, whereas in MMA, you fight from further out. So every time Aldo is throwing that kick is from further away than Muay Thai distance, which means he ends up hitting with the bottom of his shin or his ankle or his instep. And I think just from years of that, his legs are just 
fucked up. So every time he lands a kick, it hurts him. I noticed that actually first time when he fought Uriah Faber, I was like, why did he stop kicking? And then I could tell he was starting to get hurt from throwing all those kicks. Well, those are all great points you just made, you just made especially the, the distance. The, you don't have to worry about someone lowering their level and double leg and you in Muay Thai, so you can fight at closer range with that, with the high guard, right? Um, you, can't do, you can't necessarily do that in MMA. So the, I guess the more techniques that are av- available tend to, to muddy those waters quite a bit. Um, as, as far as the, the ankles and feet taking a beating, trust me, I get it. I mean, I've had three surgeries on my left foot, two reconstructions, two full reconstructions on my left ankle and two surgeries on my right foot. So even like drilling kicks with, uh, with my guys that I'll show techniques to and they block them with an elbow, like I, I, part of me dies inside. Like I, I, I start to like, I'm not externally crying, but I'm internally crying because I got screws in both, both my feet and I got, um, my left ankle is, is just absolutely trash. I've got a cadaver tendon in there and a bunch of screws. So like, even whenever it just sort of like you throw a shot and they block it and the, the ankle sort of rolls over and does this like extended wiggle, um, it, it hurts man, and you feel it. And I don't kick anywhere nearly as well or as hard, um, or as often in my life as Jose Otto has. So I'm sure you are correct. I'm sure you are correct. But as a fan that doesn't know Jose Otto's medical history, I'm always like, dude, you got to kick more. Dude, you got to (laughs) kick Yeah. And I think he has brought the kicks back, right? He is using it because he's lost some stuff. He's lost some attributes. So he had to bring back some old tools, but he's using it sparingly. And he does a lot of his best work when people kick him and he checks their kick. You know, he's really good at that and hurting them by just checking it. So, and he's so, he's so good at that. It's like he stole the other team's playbook or something. Like he knows <laughs> when you're going to kick and he just lifts that leg and turns it. Uh, and he gives like, <laughs> he gives so many uh, MMA analysts stuff to write about when he does that stuff so easily. Right? Uh, it's, it's really fun to watch him do that. Um, and you start to think about his, uh, his, his career and what he's been able to do not strictly relying on that otherworldly athleticism that he has. He's another guy who is just like physically gifted, but as his physical tools, I mean, he's so physically gifted that even him at 85% of his former self with speed, uh, with his speed declining and his reaction time decreasing, he still looks super fast and super good and, and is beating top five in the world. Because he is top five in the world. His skills are still that good. Uh, but if you've been around long enough, you know what he once was. So you see those those skills start start to diminish a bit. You have to be impressed with the way he's been able to sort of problem solve that and make those necessary adjustments. And you can't help but to root for him. And he was so athletic early in, early in his career that I rooted against him. <laughs> and now all right and now he's an old man and i can i can i can relate so i'm proud of what he does and i love him now <laughs> yeah you know you make a good point about how his athleticism has gone away because now he's such a crafty fighter absolutely i think that's what if he ever decides to go into coaching i think that kind of oh yeah right that kind of that kind of learning curve Right. He had to make those adjustments when he didn't quite have the same kind of athleticism that he had before. When we see fighters um, like we could say in boxing, Roy Jones, he didn't have 
a, a ton of fundamentals. So when that kind of speed and reaction time and reflexes started to wane, so did his career. Um, and yeah, they're different sports, certainly. Um, and there's other skills that, that Jose can rely on, excuse me, Jose can rely on. And I've been butchering his name this whole time. My apologies. <laughs> I still do it, but Jose Aldo, um, Aldo has been able to do it in a way that if you didn't watch him diligently early in his career, you'd still think that, that, that is that he's, He's as athletically gifted right now as the majority of 35ers are in their prime, but he, he's definitely lost a little. And if you recognize that, then you recognize like how great the adjustments are really that he's been able to make in real time at this point in his career. Now let's talk about the co-main event with Raphael Faziv knocking out former training partner Brad Riddell with a spinning wheel kick. Now, this was a 155-pound fight, but as I told you, I always forget that both of these fighters are 155 because, especially as kickboxers, they look more like bodybuilders. As you said, they're built like stumps, and especially at lightweight, they're tall. You know, a lot of the lightweights are very big, whereas these guys, I think they're both like 5'8 or something. And so it's, it's interesting to see stumpier, wider, shorter uh, MMA lightweights who love to kick, right? So tell me about this fight. Right. It's, it's very rare that you see someone of their stature at 155 that aren't trying to wrestle you to death and just bore you <laughs> yeah. against the cage. Oh, if you knew nothing about Fazeev and you just saw him, you would think he was a wrestler. Oh, right. Automatically. Even though even the way he moves and how thick he is in the back. And Brad, uh, Brad Riddell looks the same way, right? The same body type. Uh, they, they look like wrestlers every, every day, all day. And I know they have uh, rounded out their skill sets, and Riddell probably the better wrestler of the two, I would I would imagine. Um, but the, these guys are are the two guys that can punch from improvised positions, dependent upon where their feet fall after a kick, whether it's landing or even if it's defended or even if it's missed. Um, it's really fun to watch when I say um, a, a continuation of technique. These are guys that will miss or have a punch blocked. And then there's a three-punch counter coming back at them, and they are countering the counter. And it's not spammy, windmilly bullshit. It's really good technical fighting with, with adjustments in position and foot positioning that, that are happening while they're whipping hooks with with so much power and they just immediately adjust on the fly it was really fun to watch great fighting and with the ending what's interesting is that Vaziv has been knocked out by that same kick before in the UFC and I noticed after he got knocked out with that kick he started incorporating it his eyes were open like oh you could actually do this and win in MMA because they stand so far away right a wheel kick you can't land that when you're really in tight you have to throw that when they're a little bit further away. Yeah, especially when they want to try to exit to your lead side or you, to your weak side. You're just kind of kind of rolling into that into that that power kick or power spinning technique whenever they whip it around. It reminded me of that Sergio Perez Kyoji Horiguchi sequence, right? And that's it. You think you're you're safe, but you're not. Right, so you kind of lull them to sleep, allowing them to exit, and then you can. I mean, credit to Fiziev, who could still throw that 
technique in the third round when they had been throwing everything with power yeah. up until that point, right? And these guys are muscular 55ers. Both of their faces had so much damage. Right? And I was expecting them to, to, to really show signs of fatigue, and they didn't. And normally there's technical breakdown whenever you throw everything that hard and you start to tire. These guys were throwing everything with a hundred percent, with a ton of mustard on it, and and still being able to maintain position and have a continuation of technique. It was. I, I, I keep saying how fun that that kind of stuff is to watch, but that's where you see knockouts happen, and not the the shitty spammy knockouts from the contender series, like high level fighting that is born of marrying one technique to another and implementing a bit of strategy and fight awareness and IQ, all culminating in, where's this fucker going? All right, if he goes there, if he wants pizza, I'm going to feed him some motherfucking pizza. All right, bang, there it is. Like, hey, give it to him and let him get it. Giving someone that exit over and over and not necessarily jumping into something until you do, you know, it's, it's, it's born of strategy and technique. And I think you need to see more of that. I think we're starting to. And the beauty of it is that's creating more entertaining fighting. So the spammers and the, the slang and bangers, they can fuck off. I'd rather watch <laughs> uh, this, this kind of thing unfold. And I hope that it continues through, continues to um, throughout the, the continued evolution of mixed martial arts. What was interesting as far as pulling back again, zooming out and looking at MMA teams, Brad Riddell was doing that city kickboxing style lateral movement, you know, that you see Volkanovsky do and Israel Adesanya do fainting and, and moving to the side, right? And especially, you know, not only to exit in a new angle, but enter in a new angle. And what impressed me was like, Fazeev doesn't have like that type of footwork, yet he was just able to just turn with them, you know, going back to that idea of turning, you know, like Brad would have to do three steps to do this complicated thing. And Fiziev would just like adjust and turn with them, right? Which actually says a lot that I think a lot of MMA fans aren't used to, but you do see this in boxing, but this idea that you don't have to do all this complicated footstep because the reason why you don't see those types of complicated footsteps in boxing or at the highest level of Muay Thai or kickboxing is because you, you made them move three times, whereas you only had to move once, right? And so then they're going to get more tired moving more than you, right? And then because you're more efficient, you're always going to have that edge because it didn't take you three steps to get where you needed to be. So Fiziev, not surprisingly, also being the training partner of Piotr Jan, uses minimal footwork to really adjust against his fighters. And we saw that here as well. Yeah, it's really uh, casual, very nuanced shifts in his hips and foot placement. And when and Brad Liddell's not a very long fighter either, so whenever he does all this stuff to to create some distance and some angles, Riddell is still short, and he has to make up that distance eventually. So I think Fiziev, uh, being aware of that, let him do that. And whenever Riddell would work himself back in uh, back out of space. And closer in the pocket, um, there's two things Riddell had to pay attention to. And that was Fiziev's left hook and Fiziev's left body kick. I mean, he was throwing them both. And if you're weary of that left hook and you keep high blocking with the, the high right, all of a sudden that elbow is high and that left kick comes with the, sort of the same, the same uh, body mechanics 
as the left hook. And he, he finds that left kick to the body hard and fast. And I think that sort of wore, wore down Riddell a little bit. And so you got him trying to exit with a little bit of greater distance to not be in position for that left kick. Ah. But enough for that spinning, yeah. <laughs> spinning wheel <laughs> kick. So I think what you could talk about uh, Fizzy's aggression and you can talk about like, his, his willingness to trade. But I think he has a little more nuanced ring craft than he is given credit for. And if you if you want to if if you're training with uh, Piotr Yan, you 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 better have picked up some of that from him because he's got a ton of it too. That camp has it in spades. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Now, let's preview the lightweight title fight between champion Charles Oliveira versus Dustin Poirier. Now, if you haven't checked out Paul's comprehensive Charles Oliveira breakdown, check it out before this fight this weekend. It's free on our Patreon. And let me tell you, Paul covers it all. It is thorough. It is like a book on Charles Oliveira with visuals, with moving visuals. So you have to check it out. I know, Jason, you also checked it out and you were impressed. Oh, hell yeah. He's got fights with Popo Bezeha. No one knows how good Popo is. But Popo was world-class before anyone knew anything about fighting on the East Coast. That's what I'm saying. He <laughs> dug into the well and found, just went through the whole library of Charles Oliveira. So I know Paul actually spent months working on this article. So yeah, please check that out before the fight. But with that said, Jason, tell me your thoughts about this upcoming fight. Well, here's the difficulty. I'm, I'm having a tough time not... Um, not being swayed to put all my eggs in the Oliveira basket because of that article from Paul, right? <laughs> Having read it. Um, but I've been burned from doubting uh, Poye throughout his entire career. Like, so it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, I'm going to have to go with, with Poye only because I've been burned from <laughs> picking against. I just have. And because I said it in the, one of the other breakdowns is to me, he doesn't look like this, this super high level athlete, but his athleticism, I think is sneaky and his, his vision is outstanding in his defenses, exceptionally underrated. And he does a lot of little things well that even, you know, I consider myself a pretty good eye for talent that even I didn't pick up on right away. And it might've been his, some of his lapses in his performances whenever he dropped to 45 and, and coming back up or um, uh, getting clipped by Michael Johnson or, or whatever. But 2.0 Poirier um, is tough to pick against. It really is. And I've just, I've done it too often and I had to, I had to eat my words. I mean, Poirier, to your point about athleticism, we think about power, we think about speed explosiveness yeah Poirier doesn't have that but what he does have that you want to see in an athlete especially in the weight room is Poirier always just naturally it, you could just tell it's just inbuilt athleticism 
always maintains good posture. He always has that gorilla back. And so because he maintains that good posture, he's able to take good shots. He's able to rotate on his shots. Like he's able to generate power. He's always in a good physical athletic position to do everything. Right. Another, another incredibly astute observation from you. That, that's perfectly stated. He, he does that also while maintaining, um, he maintains that, that proper positioning while shifting stances quite a bit. And like he clubbed McGregor with like a that that one right hook before the sequence that in the first in the second fight before the sequence that that put him out and like if you see you're like oh shit man this dude can pop from those those little awkward um, awkward exchanges where like MMA has a lot of muddy positions right a lot of muddy waters just from the the multiple skills at play and you're allowed to grapple you're allowed to elbow you're allowed, allowed to knee and he finds boy he finds punches where you didn't think that the angles would allow for it he's able to make those adjustments because he stays in pretty good position almost all the time and you know, he's incredibly well trained he's a veteran um seems to to not be weathered at all even though he's been in some real wars um he wears it incredibly well and if he's able to maintain that that kind of um I guess degree of of performance without having any kind of physical decline based on you know wear and tear and some of the wars he's been in, I find it hard not to pick him in this fight. At the same time, right, Oliveira is is surging and he is the 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 prototype MMA fighter we all thought he was going to be. What nine years ago? Ten? Years, I forget how fucking long this guy's been around, man. But it's been a while. I think he's barely thirty, right? So he's becoming that prototype fighter that we all knew he could be. And you know, he poses a lot of problems for a lot of people if you take away that supposed um, inability to gut check and um, the, the way to find a way out. You get rid of that. I mean, we're talking about a guy who was a serious, serious problem. And after, the, after his fight with, uh, with Michael Chandler, I think you're starting to see a guy who realizes because he was able to weather a few storms, he can fucking weather storms. And there's no substitute to experience, right? There's no substitute for experience. He's been in there. He's done that. Now he knows. He knows in his heart of hearts and his brain. He knows, hey, if it happens, he can bear it. And then he can can still win. He can still perform. He's not out of this. So... A, a composed and confident Charles Oliveira, I think, is possibly one of the best fighters on the planet, top two or three. And let, make no mistake, heart is born of cardio, right? I, I'm not finishing a fucking marathon because of my will to win if I haven't trained for it. Right? You're just not. You're gonna. My body's gonna give out. For me, probably on mile six. For someone who just runs half mile, half marathons, probably on mile fifteen or sixteen. You know the. Confidence is born of cardio, and and composure is born of cardio. When the body starts to fatigue and fall apart, I mean, you can gut it out to an extent, but like, the body wants to wants to stop fighting when it is physically exhausted. You can mind over matter it to an extent, but if you think you're going to mind over matter it against the second best. 155 pounder or possibly the first or the best 155 pounder in the world you're crazy so i'm sure that there have been adjustments 
made to address uh, Oliveira's cardio issue. And he seems to fight stronger, longer. And he's also better at pacing himself, even whenever he gets in some ridiculous scrambles. He's not holding on to chokes as long as he did in the, the Felder fight where he gassed his arms out. Maybe 10 aiding Felder in that round, but committing to a Darsh choke that made his arms relatively useless for the next three minutes until he got pounded into the canvas. So I think the, the further along in Oliveira's career, the more he's starting to know those things. And I think he's not just fighting on sheer ability and talent. Now he's got some even more experience. And with, with experience and knowledge comes some, some wisdom. And that comes with time. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think we all forget how young he was when he entered this game. And we saw, you know, the follies of a young man with a ton of potential, or we call, they call it a talent trap. Right? You're, so, you're so good that you fail to develop and you arrest your development in certain areas because you're just so good. You're, just, you're submitting everybody, so you don't have to get great at striking. Well, you're knocking everybody out, so like, how good is your cardio? Some of these things are, are, are born of experience. And I think an experienced Charles Oliveira is a problem. And I don't know. I don't know who to pick, man. In a million years, I don't know. <laughs> I, really don't know. I already sent out my picks last night and I picked Poirier. And I'll tell you why. Because despite Charles Oliveira being the champion, Poirier has had the tougher strength of schedule. Poirier has fought tougher guys and he's beaten tougher guys, even though he's the challenger. So he's been up at the highest level for a lot longer than Oliveira, which isn't to say that Oliveira can't win. We really don't know what Oliveira is like against the very best of the best until he fights somebody like Poirier, because I feel like the other victories he had, it's not to the level of somebody like Dustin Poirier. And just from the past, we don't know where they are now, but just from the past, it looks like Poirier has the better boxing. Poirier is more durable. Poirier historically has had better gas tank than Oliveira. So just from what we know from the past, it's a safer assumption to assume Poirier will win, but this will be Oliveira's biggest test to show like who he really is now. Well, in that case, I just put the, the savings account on Poirier. <laughs> like, it's a great <laughs> argument. It's an outstanding argument. Uh, and I, I think I agree with you about every point you made. That still, it's a weird thing. If I, if I put a significant amount of money on that fight, I just wouldn't be comfortable betting against Oliveira, nor would I be comfortable betting against Poirier. And I know that's, that's sort of the, the, the easy way out, but you got a guy who's probably fought and superseded his potential in Poirier with a guy that in Oliveira is finally meeting his potential. So the narrative and the script unfolding as it has is just is just fantastic from a fight fan's perspective and from an analytical perspective. I think that's all the fights we have time to discuss. Thanks for your time, Jason. I think at this point, all the listeners know who you are. But if they don't, give us your Twitter handle. Uh, I am at Jason Sargis on Twitter. Uh, and I think that's it. If not, you can find me normally co normally commenting on something Sam says on Twitter at some point. <laughs> you could probably find him again here in a future episode as well. <laughs> on a future episode of Southpaw Podcast. Always a pleasure, Sam. To all of you, thanks for listening. Please check out all the other shows on the Southpaw Network. 
And don't forget to financially support us as well on Patreon. And if you want to know more about Charles Oliveira, check out Paul's write-up on that. It's uh, veteran to champion Charles Oliveira. And you can find that for free on Patreon. Catch you all next time. See you, folks.